Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 178, and we're going to talk about the absolutely simplest way to get a solar-powered battery in your rig. Don't care if it's a big rig, small rig, fancy rig, or just your daily driver, this is easy. We're also going to talk about hooks and where you can put them and some strange places you can put them that'll help you out. And we're going to have a tale from the road involving pizza and Buddha. Did you know those things went together? (laughs) They don't, but I'll tell you the story. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate you guys being here. And I also appreciate the support of three special people this week, Pat D., Joshua and Kent. You guys have been incredibly generous. Thank you so much for helping to support the channel. There will be no podcast ads this week, and I really like being able to say that. If you would like to support this program, visit buymeacoffee.com slash built to go. And if you'd like, you can get one of these hook waka bang stickers, which comes with its own story. So thank you very much, and let's get going. All right, solar scares a lot of people. Solar gets complicated really quickly. If you're somebody who's like, I think I might like to try the van life, and, you know, I've got this minivan, and I could, you know, throw a mattress back there, but but then what do I do about the battery and charging and all that? Solar seems to be what people do, and then you stumble across Will Prouse's channel, and you're like... I am completely overwhelmed by all of this stuff. (laughs) Now, that's not a dig at Will Prowse. Will Prowse actually tries to simplify solar, but solar technically can get fairly complicated. The good news is, is that you, just somebody who's in their van and wants to have a fan and a way to charge their phone, you don't need to worry about all those details because there is a simple way for you to have a battery that is charged by solar in the back of any vehicle. So I'm gonna give you all the things you need to pick up to do this, and it isn't gonna cost all that much. We'll get into some details. But the first thing you're gonna wanna buy is a 100 watt rigid solar panel. You can get these from Amazon. They're typically under $100. And the reason I recommend these panels for this is that they are bulletproof. They're a meter a yard long and half a yard wide, half a meter wide. And they're rigid. They're they're like a glass table. In fact, you can use them as a table if you want, although that might defeat the purpose of using them for solar. And you can mount them to your roof, which is easily the hardest part of this whole thing. Mounting to the roof requires some ability to drill holes and whatever. Or you can just keep them in the back of your rig and pull them out when you want to solar charge your battery. You have that choice. That's the first step. Now, on the back of that rigid panel, there's going to be two wires that come out. One's positive and one's negative, and those have a connector on them. That connector is called MC4. Uh Uh-oh, we're getting technical here. (laughs) It doesn't matter what it's called. You can consider it the connector for your solar panel. That's it. Okay, that's the first thing you have to pick up, so go ahead and buy one of those. I'll wait. No, 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 I won't. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep going. You can hit pause if you want. That'll work. The next thing you want to do is to get a all-in-one battery power unit that accepts solar input. And it doesn't have to be an expensive one. You can get any 250 or 500 series all-in-one, I hate using this term, solar generator. 
it's neither solar nor a generator, but uh, that's a rant for another time. I will have links to all this stuff in the show notes, of course, but the battery I've been using this way is an old Awanfi that I talked about in the show a couple years ago. I'm still using that thing and I'm charging it with solar and it works great. Now, what, the, what this all-in-one thing is going to do for you is solve a whole lot of wiring issues. You're going to have a little box, probably with a handle on it, and it is going to have a way to charge your phone. It's going to have even AC outlets, so you can plug in regular AC appliances, as long as they're not too heavy. You're not going to be doing a hairdryer or a toaster. But a fan and a phone charger, yes, you can do those. It may have a light on it. You guys can pick whichever one you want. I mean, you can get a Jackery, or you can get an Awanfi, or I've got another one that's called a Wakami. I mean, there's, there's dozens and dozens of these things. Just make sure it's lithium, and make sure that you can use it while it's being charged. The very, very cheap ones sometimes don't allow that. You can either use it or charge it, and that doesn't work. That's stupid. The first one I bought was like that, and it was garbage, so don't do that. There's one other step to this, and that is, how do you connect the solar panel to the battery unit? Well, they don't have the same connectors, and this is where people get stuck. You've got the MC4 connector on the solar panel, and then you've got usually either a barrel plug which is the kind of connector that you would plug in the power from a PC to, usually, that, that's usually a barrel plug, not always, uh, or an Anderson plug, which is what my Awanfi has. But how do you get the MC4 into these? Well, the answer is you buy an adapter, and you can get these on Amazon. In my case, for my Awanfi, I bought an MC4 to Anderson adapter, and I can literally just plug the solar panel into this, and I'm done and I can use it all day long and in fact I do. When I go down to my river property and just hang out and watch the birds all day, I'm next to an RV that has power but I don't feel like running all those wires. So what I do is I just use my little portable battery and then I have the solar panel that I pull out and charge it and by the end of the day, even with me using the battery, it's usually fully charged. So that sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? You'll end up with two things. You've got your solar panel that'll have the wires and the adapter attached to it, and you've got the battery. And that's it. You didn't have to cut any wires. You didn't have to drill any holes. You didn't even have to understand how any of it worked. You've got a sustainable solar power system for your rig, and it costs you $400, maybe less, depending on what you do. Now you might be thinking, well, $400, that seems like a lot. What if I just got my own battery, like just a starter battery out of this old car I have and recharge that with solar? You can do that. You absolutely can do that, but that will require cutting some wires. If hooking the solar panel up to your power unit is level one, now we're gonna talk about level two. Level two is to have your solar panel go to a solar controller and then to a battery. This isn't that complicated and it's actually cheaper than the first option, but it does require a little bit of wiring. So you stick with your rigid panel and out of it's coming the MC4 connectors. Okay. You're then going to want to get an extension cable, an MC4 extension cable. Not a big deal. They're very easy to find. You plug that into the solar panel and then you're going to cut the ends off. <laughs> because you want bare wires. Those wires are going to go into your solar controller. Solar controllers come in all different kinds, but there's two basic kinds. There's the PWM and the MPPT. 
And the MPPT is the better one, but it's also much more expensive and much bigger. I have a Renogy Rover, and frankly, it's huge. I mean, this thing, this thing is like this big. It's it's like it's like the size of a corned beef dinner. <laughs> Things pretty huge. But I also have PWM controllers, and I I have a little rowboat with a trolling motor, and the way I charge that is with this tiny little fifteen dollar PWM controller. Now, is the PWM controller as good as the MPPT controller? No, it really isn't. MPPT controllers are more efficient. They can do more. They'll give you more information. But a PWM controller works. It does work. And that's what we're after here. So if you're just getting started in solar, go ahead and just start with the PWM controller. You can always swap it out for a better one later. So the PWM controller has three sets of terminals. You've got one set that the solar goes into, you've got one set that goes to your battery, and then you've got another one called load. You can just ignore load. Load is complicated, but you can attach a device to it if you want. You could say hook up a little light or a little fan to load and it will have power but you can't add too much because you'll burn out your controller. So if you want to keep it simple, just ignore load. If you're ever hooking up a solar controller to a battery, always, always hook up the battery to the controller first. You want to power the controller before you hook up the solar. You might be thinking, well, this is kind of a pain because I take out the panel and then I've got this wire. Where's the wire go? It is perfectly fine to shut the wire in the door, whether it be a tailgate or a back door. As long as it's in the part of the door where you have the rubber seal, you're fine. Obviously, you want to avoid hinges and latches. You do not want to run your wires through an open window. There's a chance that you will close the window on the wire. The pressure of the window closing on the wire can actually damage the wire but doors not a problem and that's it that's really all there is to it boom you've got solar for your battery and then you can join the rest of us who have all the same problems of oh geez it's cloudy today i'm not going to get as much power or it's raining i'm going to get hardly any power etc 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 but that's just part of solar life if you want free energy to charge your battery the simplest way possible well now you know how. Tech Talk. Let's talk about hooks. <laughs> hooks. So I think hooks are great. Uh, in fact, my ambulance, after I was done building out the basics, the one thing I missed the most was hooks. It didn't come with any hooks. I, I don't know why ambulances don't tend to come with hooks. I suppose they're afraid that people get hook themselves on them or something. But hooks are great. And in my opinion, you should put hooks wherever you can. Because in the course of daily life in a van, you're always looking for a place to put something, whether it be a jacket or a bag or groceries or some bananas or a bag of onions or I mean, whatever. There's, there's endless uses for these. And you will find that the more hooks you have, the happier you will be. <laughs> or maybe that's just me. I've learned some tricks with hooks, and I thought I would share them with you. First thing is those command hooks, the ones that stick on and then you can pull them off. 
eventually they're going to let you down. They are not really designed for van life. They're not designed for the vibrations and the temperature differences. And you can put them in some places and maybe they'll last for a while. Like under a sink, they're kind of okay. But if you're going to put any kind of weight on hooks, these things aren't the best. And in fact, they're more expensive than the metal hooks. You actually want to find metal hooks that you can screw in. That's the best way. And you can find them on Amazon or anywhere. Actually, Amazon has the best selection of hooks, like most things. I have gone to Home Depot and Lowe's and Menards, and I have had a hard time finding exactly the hook I wanted. Where you put them, you want to consider very, very carefully. So you want to put them in some obvious places. Like, you want to put them in places where you might hang a coat that makes sense you want to put them by where you cook because it's good to hang like let's say you're using a spatula okay there's a place to hang it remember horizontal space is at a premium in a van any place where you can hang something saves you that horizontal space but i also put them in some unusual places in my ambulance when i open the slider there's the bed and then there's a wall of the kitchen counter so i, I have this like little alley that i walk into but the wall that is part of the kitchen setup I put hooks really low on that near the floor. They're maybe 10 inches or a foot off the floor. Now, why did I do that? I did it for groceries. When I go grocery shopping in my van, I will stack the grocery bags on the floor and I can then, using those plastic bags that everybody either loves or hates, I can hook those onto the hooks and that keeps the bags on the floor and closed. And that has been very, very useful. If you're doing full-time van life, you can just put your groceries away and this is less useful. But for me, being a part-timer, I'm using my van as a daily driver as well. So I use it to get groceries for my house. And this comes in really handy because before I would put the groceries back there and when I got home I'd have to chase the oranges around the van because they rolled away. So having some hooks near the floor is super useful. Another place to put them on near the floor is in the back. They're just little points to grab things so stuff doesn't roll away. Now I'm not talking about D-rings or anything substantial. You're not going to lash down a kayak to these things. But it is really, really handy just to have these hooks around where like, oh, I've got this USB cord. I want to keep it in the back. Where do I put it? Oh, I can hang it on this hook. Trust me, you will never regret having a hook in your van. With one exception, <laughs> we need to talk about this. I have a hook in my van that's about waist height, and it's right by the sliding door. And twice now, I've caught my belt loop in this hook as I was leaving the van. And you know how tall these vans are. If I hadn't stopped myself, I would have been hanging from the van as I got out of the van and maybe even done some damage. So always think about your hook and how it's going to affect you as you pass by it. Because if you're a klutz like me, it's very likely you're going to hook yourself on it. And in that same note, get hooks that aren't sharp. Don't get sharp hooks. Get hooks with like a rounded tip so that you have less chance of injuring yourself on them. And, and finally, when you're installing hooks, consider how much weight you're going to put on them. You will find that hooks have a weight rating. Forget that. That's not what matters. It's not the hook that you're worried about breaking. It's what it's attached to. If you're screwing it into a 2x4, it's going to be pretty strong. But if you're screwing it into something else, like a piece of Ikea furniture, it's not going to be all that strong. It's going to pull itself out if you put too much weight on it. So just keep that in mind. But really, folks, having hooks is a wonderful thing. And if you haven't considered it, 
Give it a try. And if you've got a van that isn't built out, don't overlook the magnetic hooks. The very, very strong magnetic hooks that cost about $10 a piece can hold a lot of weight, and that's maximum flexibility. Tales from the road. One of my many jobs, and I've lost track, but it's been over 50 at this point, was to deliver pizza for Domino's. And this was way back in 1985, actually. It was uh, Christmas break, 85, 86. I walked into Domino's and said, hey, I'm on Christmas break. I'm going to be here for a month, and I'd be happy to deliver some pizzas for you. And they handed me a Domino's coat and a pizza and said, off you go. (laughs) So, hey, it was an easy way to make some money, although boy, delivering pizza beats the crap out of your car. I'm pretty sure doing that actually cost me a clutch, which uh, wasn't really worth it. I was delivering pizza in Salem, Massachusetts, which is an interesting place at the most boring of times. And I've told a story before about the Friday night pizza delivery woman. But call came in and it was an address I didn't recognize. It was a weird address. Like it was in a part of town where there weren't any houses. And I looked at the map, because again, this is 1985, there's no GPS, we did everything by map and memory, and I noticed that this is next to a power station. So there's a coal-burning power station in Salem, it's, it's down by Salem Willows, if you're familiar with Salem. There's actually a lot of history down there, but I had never delivered a pizza to a power plant before, and I thought, oh, well, so some guys are working late and they want a pizza, and like, okay, I can do this. So I grabbed the pizza. And I think it was just a plain large pepperoni pizza. It was nothing fancy. And I head down to what's called Salem Neck. That's where the power plant is. And I get to the gate. The guy at the gate is like, nobody at the power plant ordered a pizza. And I was like, well, well, this is the address. And it's not for you. I thought maybe it was for the security guard. And he said, no, not for me. And then he looked over and he said, oh, I know who it's for. Look, I'm going to have to escort you. Uh, is it okay if I get in your car? And so the security guard got in my car, a 1980 Datsun 510, and told me, head down this road. Now, okay, (laughs) I don't know what's going on. This is an awful lot of work for a single pizza, but I've never been here before, and it's kind of interesting driving around these industrial places. And as we're driving, he notices that I have a Buddha on my dashboard. This is one of those little brass tourist Buddhas, you know, and uh, it was just sitting on my dashboard. It had been for years. And he said, you don't believe in that stuff, do you? And I was like, well, I mean, I like some of the tenets of Buddhism. This was kind of like a mascot. It was kind of made me be a little bit more Zen from time to time. And, 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 you know, I was a young kid, maybe. Well, I was 19. I don't know how young that makes me. But he he, kind of looked at me with derision, like, well, don't get led astray by that stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, I probably know more about this stuff than you do. So, you know, just because you're old doesn't mean you should lecture me on this. But anyway, whatever. I'm not there to cause problems. I'm there to deliver a pizza. And so we drive down and then i realize we're right next to the ocean we're on a dock and docked at this dock is a cargo ship filled with coal and he has us pull up right next to the ship so i'm actually parked on the pier right next to this ship and there's this little door open with a gangplank and as soon as we pull up like four heads poke out of the door and then they all come running down the gangplank to my car (laughs) 
because they're so excited to have a pizza. I don't know how long they've been stuck on the ship, but it turns out they were a Canadian ship that was bringing coal to Salem, Massachusetts. I don't quite understand the logistics of that, or maybe it was an American ship with a Canadian crew. I, I don't know. All I know is that these guys were thrilled to see me. They thought I was the biggest celebrity in the world. They started asking me all these questions, and they were really, really happy with the pizza. I handed it to them. You know, you pull it out of the bag, the thermal bag we have, and they took it, and they opened it, and then three of them smelled it at once. And like, oh, man, this is great. And then one of them stayed by to ask me, you know, about myself. It's like, oh, so who are you? What do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a college student. I'm just here on winter break, but I did grow up here. And then he saw the Buddha on my dashboard. And he looked at it and looked at me and said, hey, that's cool. And then he went into the ship. I drove back, dropped the security guard off, and continued my brief life as a pizza delivery guy. <laughs> Very fun experience, a fun memory, and uh, I will always think of those Canadian sailors every time I see one of those little brass Buddhist statues. I still have it here somewhere. Product review. I know, I know, so many of you absolutely hate anything that says Keurig. They're wasteful, they produce these plastic pods that destroy the world they taste terrible whatever i get it i get it i don't agree though <laughs> i'm sorry i don't agree i and, and full disclosure i used to live next door to the guy that kind of owned the company that made these green mountain coffee roasters i live next door to the owner of green mountain coffee roasters from vermont you know the green crunchy granola eco-friendly place they're the ones who started keurig anyway I understand your complaints about them. However, you can now buy compostable pods or you can just buy a reusable basket and put your own coffee in it. I mean, so if Keurigs are wasteful, it's because of you, not the Keurigs. You don't have to use those little plastic cups. If you like the convenience of Keurig, you can have a Keurig in your van. And I've talked about the MyJo before. This is a manual Keurig that doesn't require any electricity. But I recently decided to upgrade a bit and I bought the smallest electric Keurig that they make and uh, I've been using it for a while now and you know what it's pretty darn good now if you're the kind of person who likes Keurig these are great for van life it's a very small device it's single cup use so you're not going to fill the reservoir with water and like get 10 cups out of it and that's a good thing in a van you don't want that you want to do one cup at a time for a few reasons. First, it uses the least amount of power. It's going to heat up the water and make your coffee each and every time. So it's the minimal amount of energy that you're going to be able to use with a Keurig. Second, you don't want water sitting around in your van. It's something to slosh out and where it's going to use every drop of water you put into it every time. You don't have to worry about spills and things like that. Second, this thing is really thin. It's just as wide as a coffee cup, and it's probably as tall as three coffee cups. Now, it's deep. You're going to have to have a narrow place to put this, but that's usually not that hard to find in a van. And it works pretty simply. There's a reservoir you add water into, and then you add the cup or the basket or wherever you're going to make your coffee. Close it, press a button, and it makes your coffee. And if you have a decent inverter, uh, like a 2,000-watt inverter, which is what I'm using mine on, yeah, it works great, and it doesn't drain that much power. Plus, 
you tend to make coffee in the morning, giving you all day long to solar charge your battery. So the morning's a great time to use a lot of power like this. How's the coffee taste? Completely subjective, of course. Um, I think it tastes fine. I actually like Keurig coffee. I think Keurig is nice because it's completely flexible. If you're traveling with someone else and they want hazelnut and you want dark roast, not a problem. You don't have to make a whole pot of each. And if later in the day you want coffee but you don't want the caffeine, you can have a decaf. You just put in a different pod or use a different coffee in the basket. Cleanup, and this is my favorite part, there isn't any. You just throw away the pod, and then every so often you can wipe it down. There's a sharp needle in there, so you have to be careful of that. And then imagine you're going to have to descale it every once in a while, but that's as simple as pouring some white vinegar into it and running a cycle or two. So if you're a Keurig person, the single-use Keurig machines, which come in really pretty colors, by the way. Mine is, mine is bright red. <laughs> totally works it totally works if you have a, a decent size battery to power it or you have shore power of course you can do whatever you want with shore power now right now on amazon there's 66 dollars and 27 cents it is absolutely not the cheapest way to make coffee in your van but it's one of the most convenient and flexible and if it's your thing well hey give it a shot i think it works great there's one caveat with this thing though you cannot let it freeze don't let it freeze. If you have it permanently installed and you're going to use the van in cold weather, you're going to have to winterize it. And you would do that by pouring RV antifreeze into it and making a cup of RV antifreeze coffee and then letting it sit. The good news about that is that you can easily run a couple cycles of fresh water through and then use it for a weekend of skiing or whatever and then antifreeze it again at the end and you're fine but you do have to do that because there's always going to be a little bit of water in there and if it freezes it's going to ruin it so anyway you choose how you want to make your coffee but this is another option a place to visit well everyone loves Route 66, right? And there's the whole Route 66 song that takes you through the whole journey from Chicago to L.A. And what people don't seem to focus too much on is the eastern part of Route 66. I mean, it starts in Chicago, right? You don't think of Chicago and Route 66. And then it goes all the way through Illinois, all the way to St. Louis. And heck, that's five hours driving now on the modern interstate it was probably six seven or eight back then and there's lots of stuff to see on route 66 in illinois there's the rabbit ranch which is quite the experience there is the birthplace of the corn dog because that's a pilgrimage everyone should do i think but that's not what i want to talk about i want to talk about a very unusual place that i visited and was kind of taken aback by and it is called the Chain of Rocks Bridge. So to get to St. Louis from Illinois, if you know anything about the geography of the area, you have to cross the Mississippi River because that's the border. <laughs> Crossing a river generally means a bridge. And so they built this bridge at Chain of Rocks. Chain of Rocks was a series of rapids on the Mississippi. And it was a good place to put a bridge because there were places to put the abutments. If you're just in the mud of the river, that's very difficult. But if there's some bedrock there, well, then it's easier and so they put a bridge there this is way back in the 20s and 
as they were building the bridge, they ran into two problems. <laughs> One is that the ground wasn't as firm as they thought, so they had to kind of move the bridge in the middle. And the second was that there are what are called cribs or water intake buildings in the river near there. These look like castles sticking out of the water. Uh, I'm sorry, podcast people. You're going to have to look this up to see this, but it's worth it. There are these two they look like castles sticking up out of the water. And when they were building the bridge, they found that they were too close to those. And if any kind of boat came in that area, it would have trouble missing the bridge abutments and the water cribs. It may have hit either, and that's not good. They were halfway through the bridge when they discovered this. So what did they do? They put a bend in the bridge. This bridge does not go straight across the river. It has a dog leg in the middle. <laughs> it's the craziest thing. You're going across the river and then you got to turn like 45 degrees to the right to finish going. In the old days, it was fine because everyone's driving their Model A's or whatever, but once tractor trailers came about, it started to be a problem because trucks couldn't make that turn. And so they built a new bridge way down river. So they closed the bridge. It's no longer open for vehicular traffic. It is now for pedestrians and bikes, and you can walk from Illinois to St. Louis or vice versa across this bridge. It's free. I've done it. It's it's fairly long. It's at least a mile to cross the entire thing. But the history of this bridge is well worth knowing. If you're an 80s movie fan, you have probably seen this bridge because the 69th Street Bridge from Escape to New York yeah, no, it's this bridge. They filmed Escape from New York on this bridge. And if you look carefully, you'll see that it does look similar. Now, this is a much smaller bridge than like the George Washington Bridge or anything like that. So it's a little surprising. And the history gets a little darker from there. There was a fairly grisly murder that took place there. Um, I'll have a link in the show notes if you want to look it up. Actually, you can just go to the Wikipedia page and they list it there. But it involved three people getting robbed, sexually assaulted, and then being forced to jump off the bridge into the Mississippi. That was a death sentence for two of them. In fact, they still haven't found one of the bodies. Uh, one of the bodies they found washed up 200 miles downriver. So there's a little plaque that explains that. I'm not one of those dark tourists that wants to go visit places that bad things have happened. But heck, if that's your thing, well, this is definitely one of those places. It's an interesting place to visit and a lot of places to take pictures. Take these pictures and you post them on Instagram or whatever. People will ask you, what the heck is that? Because you'll get these angles on these weird castles coming out of the river that just like, people are like, what is that? Did somebody live there? And, and, and no, it's just places where water was taken in for St. Louis. So anyway, I'll have links in the show notes. It's part of the Route 66 trip, which is pretty complicated in Illinois because they moved Route 66 several times. But it is my favorite part of Route 66. Honestly, of the whole trip. I'm sorry, Tucum Carry. This takes the cake. Resource recommendation. I have been hooked on this podcast, and I thought I'd share it with you. It has nothing at all to do with van life, except that we spend a lot of time driving, and this is a good distraction. And it's the Lateral Podcast. That's what it's called. Lateral Podcast. It's done by Tom Scott, my hero. <laughs> I've talked about him a few times. And it is a lateral thinking podcast. Now, lateral thinking, if you're not familiar with the term, is a way to figure things out, but you have to think laterally rather than linearly. 
It's a little hard to explain very quickly, but instead of figuring out, okay, there are footprints in the sand we have to go look up what footprints they are and figure out that it was a mouse or a raccoon or whatever you would ask questions like why is there sand there and why would something be walking there it's a different approach to solving puzzles and basically it's a game show so he presents a puzzle uh, and here's here's one from the show it was actually the game among us which you may have played it's kind of like werewolf it's a a video game where there's a traitor in this group of people broke the Geneva convention. <laughs> why? And then you have to use lateral thinking to figure out why. And I mean, how could a video game break the Geneva convention? And you can listen to the podcast to find out, but the panelists his guest panelists have to figure it out by asking the right questions. And it ends up being a little bit like 20 questions. They can ask yes, no questions, but they, yeah, you'll see. Anyway, it's very entertaining. Each episode's 45 minutes long, and I have found that it makes time fly while I'm driving, and I thought you might like it too. So that is the Lateral Podcast by Tom Scott, available wherever your favorite podcasts are found. Well, everyone, thank you very much for listening to episode 178. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. If you need to get a hold of me for any reason, I am Jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Uh, and because it's so hot, I thought we'd have a quote today from Pat Conroy, who said, Walking the streets of Charleston in the late afternoons of August was like walking through gauze or inhaling damaged silk. Whew.